Good morning. Let's see if we ask a question here to find our way through this topic that we've been studying the last few weeks. How many of you guys would say you've ever done a significant study of the Reformation? You would say, hey, I, I've spent some significant time looking at that. How many guys would say I've done a significant study of the Reformation? Wow. This is trouble. Because <laughs> even though we are taking the month of October to do this, there's just a lot to cover. And there's a lot that can be easily misunderstood. And, uh, and I'm trying to be careful in how we explain some of the dimensions of what does it mean to be reformed in our thinking and in our theology and what impact did that have on the church and its history. Uh, and today, really, we're going to sit in the crux of the matter, perhaps more than any other, uh, other week, this week and next week, but I think this week in particular. So 500 years ago, on October 31st, is the date that we recognize that Martin Luther nailed this long list, 95 theses, 95 statements for an open public discussion that started what we call the Reformation. <clears throat> During that time, maybe a few years after that, if you follow, if you guys didn't sleep through world history class, <clears throat> you may remember there was a European revolt that took place a number of years just after the Reformation. It was a peasant revolt that took place. And there was a number of factors in place. This is why the, the 16th century is such an interesting time frame. But to be clear, because these, these peasants who revolted, the individuals who revolted, they, they sort of hooked their trailer to Martin Luther a bit. Because during that time, politics and religion were so interwoven together that sometimes you couldn't tell the difference between who was the ruling governmental officials and who was the church officials. And quite often they shared roles of governing the people and relating to the people. So when Luther comes along and pronounces this this reformation some come along and jump onto that and say hey let's have a revolution so they turned the reformation into a revolution a few years later and it was a it was a bloody mess but you know be very clear when you go back and you visit martin luther and the reformers they they were not trying to start a social revolution that's not what the reformation is the reformation sits with one particular question above all others how does one get right with God? That was the question that drove the Reformation. How does a human being get right with God? How do, in biblical language, how does one become righteous? <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> I tried to turn that off. Sorry, I couldn't. These kids get to hear me swallow. <clears throat> And that's going to that's gonna bring us to the issue that's at the center of the Reformation. Is, now, don't turn me off now. <clears throat> there we go. All right, so this thing's moody. It does what it wants. Um, there's a doctrine in Scripture that's the doctrine of justification. That has to do with how does one get right with God. And, and seeing as you just all didn't raise your hands in this arena, that this is not somewhere that you've sat down and studied carefully. It was interesting, R.C. Sproul 
writing a book about the doctrine of justification. He says this, he says, I have found that the vast majority of people who call themselves Protestants have no idea what they are protesting. Erasmus, and I'm going to come back to Erasmus a little bit later. Erasmus, he was a, he was a, a he was a bit of a theologian and writer in the time frame of the Reformation. <clears throat> he says he addressed the core issue of the Reformation, which was the question of how a sinner finds salvation in Christ. Luther asserted that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. The formal cause of the Reformation was the question of Scripture, which we studied last week, right? Who says so? Who takes the authority to be able to tell you what it is that you believe? But the material cause was the question of justification. And that question is what introduces us to the next two solas in our study. Sola gratia, grace alone, and sola fide, faith alone. Alone, The reformers believed that at the heart of the Reformation was the understanding that we get right with God by grace alone, through faith alone. And they were jealous to protect that there cannot be a, an additional contribution, a grace component that God does, and then a human contribution component that you and I must do. And it's interesting, Oswald Spengler says this. This is a little upside down, but, but follow carefully. Guys, you're going to have to do something about how this thing sounds. I don't know what happened, but it's, it's driving me nuts. And I imagine the hundreds of ears listening to it are being driven nuts too. <clears throat> Oswald Spengler says, Luther fought the church, not because it demanded too much, but because it demanded too little. Now, this is an interesting thought. And, and, and here's the great danger. At some point in church history... Grace plus something else began to take place. Something else began to be added. Something of a requirement of men. You were now required to add this portion, to respond to God this way, to add something and make a contribution into this arena of salvation. Now, one doesn't realize that if your effort your religious effort, your sincere effort, if your effort can reach up and touch God, then you have a low view of God on your hands. And this is the great dilemma of world religions. This is the great dilemma of Christianity that pollutes the doctrine of grace. That in order for humanity to have any hope of even standing on a stepping stool, And then reach and touch God by its strength and effort and determination. You are going to have to lower God for him to be reachable for us. But what scripture teaches. That if we grasp the greatness of God. I think I'll put this in your outline. If you grasp the greatness of God. His purity. His righteousness. His utter holiness. This will drive you to sola gratia. Grace alone if God is as great as we know him to be then our connection with him could only come by his grace alone and if 
you grasp the depravity of man, the condition that humanity is in according to scripture, man's inability to self-generate life, his lack of goodness, his lack of righteousness, his lack of faith and submission to God, our inability and unwillingness to repent of our loyalty to sin and to ourselves. Listen, there's one thing you and I are loyal to, it's us. And if God wants to stand in the same room with me and have the same ideas with me, then, then I'll look like I'm loyal to him. But ultimately, I'm loyal to me. And that's the great dilemma of the depravity of man. And if that is my condition, what would ever prompt me to look to God? To abandon my project of me? What would cause me to sign over the deeds of my life to him? Why would I give him control? Why would understanding come into my mind that brings light and causes me to say that my only hope is God and not in me? Why would any of those things happen if the Bible accurately describes me as a depraved, fallen individual? And if I see that correctly in Scripture, then I'm driven to sola gratia, grace alone. Timothy George says, Luther spoke almost invariably in sets of twos, law and gospel, wrath and grace, faith and works, flesh and spirit, freedom and bondage, God hidden, God revealed. Even when one side of these pairs is not expressly developed, it, it is always there by implication. Listen, these two sentences I'm reading to you. If you will hold on to this, the Bible will come to life to you in all kinds of ways. Even when you don't see this, there is an implication to what you're reading in Scripture. If the Scripture says this, it implies some things by what it says. He goes on and says, Truth can only be arrived at by way of confrontation with contrasting truth. So if you're going to understand the richness of God's gospel grace, then you're going to have to understand something of the severity of his righteousness and purity and holiness. And if you strip this one away, you will end up with something that doesn't answer to this. A goodness in God, a gospel grace that doesn't answer to the other dimensions of God's revelation. I need these contrasting truths. For example, we could not understand gospel were not for law. That reveals our inability to live rightly and thus points us to Christ. This way of thinking heightened the tensions in Luther's theology. Almost invariably, Luther chose to live with the tension rather than dissolve the paradox. And I know a lot of what we're studying here is about traditions that have come into existence through the history of the church as individuals thought through the practice of their religion and things that they believed and they introduced new ideas all throughout the history of the church. But please don't, don't overlook this. Your personality will make you a traditionalist when it comes to the scriptures. But you're wired out of certain stuff. Right? And I kind of joke about this a bit because I'm very aware of this every time I speak to an audience. That there are people sitting out there with a hammer in their hand saying, beat me to death, Keith. Beat me till I bleed. And then there are some people out here, the second you take a firm stance on anything, their personality goes, I'm crushed. I'm crushed by that. I'm so discouraged. Right? You're made of something. And you come to the Bible with what you're made of. And you want to install that as a tradition. 
And there's this, this paradox pulling between the righteousness of God, this demanding righteousness and purity and perfection of God, and man who's looking to get a break and get right with God. And dependent on your personality is dependent on how you'll solve that. The Bible's not asking you to solve it. It's asking you to accept it. That these things exist at the same time. And for Luther, when he came in contact with that, the idea that there was installed a responsibility for man to perform certain acts, to live a certain life, To do certain things in order to contribute to being right with God. Now Luther did what most of us who have ever believed anything like that probably don't do. He took that serious. And he set out to do everything in his power as constantly as he possibly could... To contribute his portion because he had an awareness that this God is a righteous God. He's not Joe down the street. He's not the best version of Joe down the street. He's a righteous, holy God. And so if I'm going to have to contribute something to meet the standard of this righteous, holy God, I better get to work on that and I better be severe about it. I better take it serious. See, once you've introduced this idea of human contribution you've got your work cut out for you and I wonder if any of us take that as serious as you need to take it if it's going to be on the basis of what I contribute are you paying really 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 careful attention to that because you'd hate to fall short right it has eternal consequences to it last week we looked at this thought from Dr. Eric Gritch he described the time frame and the thinking in that time of how, how does one get right with God in, in light of, of failures and sins. And he said, penitent sinners were asked to show regret for their sins, contrition, confess them to a priest, confession, and do penitential work to atone for them, satisfaction. So there were these three dimensions that when, when you committed a wrong, when you became aware of your own sin, there were these three dimensions that you started down the road to address each one of them. There was a sense of contrition, that you were genuinely sorry for the offense that your sin had caused God. And then there was an act of confession, where you would enumerate the specific sins of your life and confess them. And then there was acts of penitence after you did that that expressed your desire to be right and to walk in righteousness. Well, interesting for Martin Luther, who took all three of those quite seriously, that was nothing but trouble and difficulty, as it should be for any of us. Timothy George says, because only actual sins enumerated in confession could actually be forgiven? Luther was obsessed with the fear that he might have overlooked some sin. He would confess to Staupitz, who was his kind of spiritual father, for hours, walk away, then come rushing back with some little foible he had forgotten to mention. At one point, Staupitz 
quite exasperated, said, Look here, Brother Martin, if you're going to confess so much, why don't you go do something worth confessing? Kill your mother or father, commit adultery, quit coming in here with such flumery and fake sins. Luther was plagued with another doubt. Have I been truly contrite in my confession? Or is my repentance motivated merely by fear? Do you understand? And maybe you've never asked yourself these questions. These are the right questions. Because if I say your hope for being right with God is maybe just a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit based on you dealing with your sin according to these principles. You confessing them. What if you, what if you overlooked one? What if, what if you forgot? What if you didn't really think that's really a sin, but you come to find out later that it really was a sin? What, what if you're not really all that sorry, right? It doesn't contrition mean a genuine broken sorrow in your life what what if what if you're just going through the motions what if your heart's not really involved what if the only reason why you're contrite is because you don't want to get toasted in hell later on not really all that sorry you're just trying to avoid a future destination are you really contrite i mean have you thought these things through i mean I, i lived a portion of my life going through those exact motions and I, I don't think I was all that serious about, man, let me think and contemplate seriously. Have I thought through every sin? Because I've got I've to get that on the table for it to be confessed and forgiven. I don't, I don't know that I took that all that seriously. And I'd pray the prayer, the act of contrition. But I don't remember ever being sorrowful, really affected that I have sinned against God. And I am broken and affected by that. I mean, quite honestly, I, I was going to go off and do it again. And I did, probably that afternoon. I mean, I could go and go do confession and go smoke pot later within hours. Did we take these things seriously? There should be quite a bit of uncertainty in our lives if these things sit within our power to do them right in order to make us right before God. We should be having quite an insecure experience as we walk through life if we've thought these things through carefully. That's what it did to Martin Luther. This is what drove him to look at these things seriously. He took them serious and he looked at them seriously. He was, he was driven to a, a German condition. I should have asked Lucas to make sure I didn't pronounce this wrong. Anfektung. Did I say that right? Say it correctly for me. Anfektung. Thank you. Anfektung. This is the condition. This is the experience of life that described Martin Luther. And this word means a sense of dread, despair, a sense of foreboding doom and assault, anxiety. Right? As Martin Luther thought about the concept of standing before God, this is what he felt like. With his thoughts of the righteousness of God in any sense of have I sufficiently done what I need to do to stand before this God. And listen, the the medieval period, these middle ages, they were difficult times to live in. 
One had a foreboding sense that death was lurking right around the corner. Right, here's, let me put some images up. This is, this is common artwork. All these all images are the artwork of the day. Because death really was lurking right around the corner. Right, at the beginning of the 14th century, the average lifespan was 31 years. You can get there pretty quick, can't you? How many of you guys know 31 years, you can get there pretty fast, right? <laughs> but what a different day. I think, again, the 16th century produced something that, that God used to help us see some things. Because, you know, today, all of us think today we're going to live forever, right? Nobody's pondering these images of standing before God. You know, that gray, black and white image is the dance of death. And people just watched the dance of death take place all around them. I mean, by the mid-14th century, you have the great black plague that breaks out in Europe. And somewhere between 30 and 60%, they estimate, the population was wiped out by that one plague. Sanitary conditions were awful. Disease was rampant. So it was not unusual for you to watch people close to you die. Suddenly, they were healthy, but then they suddenly caught something and there was no technology or medicine. You couldn't rush them to the hospital. They were just going to die. And so these images of death and this God of judgment and these ghoulish beings, right? This is a time frame that gives, gives, uh, gives way to Dante's writing, right? Divine comedy, the inferno, the eight layers of hell. And, and, and you got people in the first layer of hell just because they weren't courageous. So this is the kind of idea. There was this looming sense of judgment that was awaiting every one of us. You know, these guys weren't planning their retirement. They weren't busy thinking 401k, right? They were thinking, how do I get ready for this day? What do I need to do to get right? And they did everything in their power to try and make that work. Well, Luther was a guy who took that serious. And for him, everything in his power didn't just involve going through the rituals that he was called upon to go to, but for him, it meant, let me become a monk. Let me take up the most severe of lifestyle so that somehow I can do everything in my power to present myself to this God. And he had a brush with death that produced that. He was almost struck by lightning in an open field. And he promised God in that moment of exchange when death almost visited him surprisingly, he promised that he would become a monk. And he did. He turned and became a monk. Look at this interesting thought from his biographer, Roland Bainton. says, like everyone else in the Middle Ages, he knew what to do about his plight. The church taught that no sensible person would wait until his deathbed to make an act of contrition and plead for grace. From beginning to end, the only secure course was to lay hold of every help the church had to offer. Sacraments, pilgrimages, indulgences, the intercession of the saints. Yet foolish was the man who relied solely on the good offices of the heavenly intercessors if he had done nothing to ensure their favor. And what better could he do than take the cowl? He who died in the cowl would receive preferential treatment in heaven because of his habit. Even St. Thomas Aquinas himself declared the taking of the cowl to be the second baptism, restoring the sinner to the state of innocence which he enjoyed when first baptized. Monasticism 
was the way par excellence to heaven. Luther knew all of this. Now let me just, I'm not going to chase too many rabbits today, so I'm just going to chase this one rabbit real quick. Monasticism gets, gets fostered with this sense of severe treatment and living a much, much more narrow life in order to get in better with God, in order to create more of a favorable connection with God. Okay, listen, I'm not sure what you're doing in your religious practices, but, but be careful that you're not monastic in your approach to God. Because as we're going to see in just a second, your right standing with God, your hope that tomorrow God is going to be disposed toward you a certain way is sola gratia, grace alone. It will not be your religious devotion. It will not be your severity of treatment to yourself. It will not be whether you live with boundaries this big or boundaries this big in your life that creates God being favorably disposed to you. So don't think that this is not just a church history problem. This is in us, isn't it? We feel like, well, God couldn't possibly. God couldn't act on my behalf. Keith, do you have any idea what I've gone through and what I've done? I may or may not. But hear again afresh today the good news of grace alone which the reformers fought to get back into our purview. This is, this is what it meant to become a Augustinian monk in that day at the entrance ceremony for Luther as he entered the monastery. Quote, the prior described the rigors of life to be undertaken, the renunciation of self-will, a scant diet, rough clothing, vigils by night, labors by day, mortification of the flesh, the reproach of poverty, the shame of begging, and the distastefulness of cloistered existence. The initiate bowed the knee. This prayer was prayed. Bless thou thy servant, intone the prior. Hear, O Lord, our heartfelt pleas and design to confer thy blessing on this thy servant, who in thy holy name we have clad in the habit of a monk, And he may continue with thy help, faithful in thy church, and merit eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, if you've read your Bible a little bit, that last line should feel like an allergic reaction. Merit eternal life. You are speaking of a human being meriting eternal life. To the monastery he went, like others, and even more than others, in order to make his peace with God. But what do we find when we open the scriptures? Because that's what Luther did. I turned it to Galatians with me, chapter 1. What Luther did in his experience of such severity and self-denial and harsh treatment and trying to do everything in his power to meet God's requirements. In 1512, I believe it was, he was sent from the monastery to go teach in Wittenberg at the university. And it would, it would change the focus of what he was doing, but it would turn his attention to the scriptures in a way that he had not before. 
And he, he's going to study the scriptures now and he's going to see things in the scriptures. So what we're going to do here today is we're going to, we're going to walk Luther's pathway. This is what happened to Luther. In 1512, he started reading the Psalms. Then he, he read Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. And I'm just going to sample from this pathway of Luther for us and let us see the kind of stuff he was reading from the scriptures and see the impact that it had on the idea of grace plus anything. Or are we saved? Are we made right? How does one get right with God? It is by grace alone, received by faith alone. So Galatians chapter 1 Read a little bit of this passage in a previous week. The Apostle Paul, and remember all that all the reformers were doing, be careful that you don't think the reformers were coming up with new ideas. You know, there'd been history and history and ideas and history and ideas, and then along comes another group with some new ideas. And all they were doing is is looking back to the original ideas and saying, wait, time out. I, I think we've drifted from what the scriptures originally said. So the reformers weren't asking for new ideas. They were asking to return to the oldest of ideas. And that's what you hear Paul doing here in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul told these Galatians, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel not that there is another one but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you let him be accursed and you guys might remember the Galatians were dealing with the idea not to negate what Christ has done to observe and appreciate what Christ had done. But in order to be right with God, one had to add circumcision. One had to come to God the same way God had prescribed for Abraham to relate to him. And circumcision was the sign of that. So this sign needed to be performed on those who were going to follow Christ now. And so they fought for this ritual, this practice of circumcision in this day and they weren't trying to say we don't believe in Christ we don't believe in what he's done we just want to add this to it and that simple addition of human activity makes Paul freak out he's going to freak out in this book like he doesn't freak out in any other book so much so that he says you know if you do that you, you are actually describing a different gospel. This is not the same thing. You, you can't add this and say, well, now you still got the same thing, but you got a little extra baggage there. He says, no, you no longer have this anymore. If you just add this, you will subtract all of it and you will lose it all. And what's really interesting, this little phrase here in verse 8, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary. Now, please notice what's happening right here because this is right in the heart of the debate between do we believe the scriptures or do we believe traditions, especially when they get at odds with each other? Well, right here, the apostle Paul installs something. He says right here, the scriptures are the origin of authority for what we believe. 
from this moment forward, should anybody come to you and preach something contrary to this, let them be accursed. Even if it's an angel or some well-intended guy or whoever it is. So you and I have an obligation that if at any point, if at today in this church service, if next week what gets published by this church or any other church is at odds with this, you have a responsibility to protest that. Which is what the Apostle Paul was doing in Galatians. And it's what was happening with Luther and the Reformers. Right, fast forward a little bit in Galatians to chapter 3. And again, I go back and encourage you to read the entire book. It's, it's, it's quite narrowly focused on this issue, quite honestly. Verse 2 of chapter 3. Paul says, let, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Right? How did this thing get started in you? How did this connection with God get started with you? Was it your contribution Was it the activity of your flesh, even good activity of your flesh? Is that how this occurred? He says, no, it was the grace of God. It was God's initiative. It was the work of the Spirit that did this in you. So there's the starting gate. God begins this by grace. But now, now are you having to perform something in order to become perfected? Please pay careful attention to the language here. Because it's got everything to do with how one gets right with God. Are you right with God or on your way to being right with God? Did you start off right with God? Or did you get a boost about being right with God? But, but it's really a matter of you perfecting that. And one day you can hope to be right with God. But if I read Galatians, I'm, I'm forced to not come to that conclusion. Verse 5, does he... Who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's a, cre- that's a critical passage and the, James, the one in James is critical as well. That relates to how did Abraham become righteous? He just received what God had said. Was he on his way to being righteous? No, he was declared righteous in the moment that he put his faith in what God has said. And that's enormously important. That we get right with God through grace. And then Paul goes this far, and this is an alarming passage. This is a passage that if if for no other reason you're wondering, hey, why are we teaching through this series? This passage right here would be enough to justify everything we've done. Because to get... This area of belief wrong is to fall on the wrong side of this passage, which is a dangerous place to be. Galatians chapter 5 verse 2. Look, Paul says, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. 
You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Fallen away from grace by what? By adding one thing. See, it is either all what God has accomplished to make us right with him and nothing of what we have accomplished to make us right with him. But the second you add an ounce, right, the second you were to take a subatomic particle of your existence and stick it into the equation, immediately it invalidates grace. And according to this, it says you have fallen from grace and Christ is now of no advantage to you. So I'm going to stand before God in a terrible condition. This is an alarming verse. And I, I want you to be alarmed by it. This does not leave you the option to, well, Keith, that's what you believe. With somebody, I can just believe whatever else. Well, you can believe whatever else. Belief is a matter of your own heart's decision to believe. But believe in light of the scriptures that if my reliance is on anything in addition to what Christ fully did, this passage tells me Christ is now of no advantage to me and I have fallen from grace. And I'm seeking to be justified by works. And the Bible turns around and says, hey, if you want to do works, you got to do all of them. It's all or nothing. It's not like you can add like three ounces of your works. You know, blow off all the rest of what's required by the law. You just take a few highlights from your personal life and add them over here. No, the Bible says, no, no, no. If you want to make it on the basis of human works, you've got to be perfect. You've got to do the whole thing. Start to finish. You don't need Christ then. Because whatever it is he did, you can do it for yourself. But that's not what scripture teaches, right? So this is what Luther encountered in reading Galatians. And then he reads Romans. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. And that, that's, that's a fancy word as a satisfaction. And part of what you do in religion is seek to satisfy God. And what this word specifically says is it's the blood of Christ that satisfies God. Does it satisfy him for the most part? Is, is he close to being satisfied? But just if you could just bring a little bit to help him get to the end there, he'll be completely satisfied. Or does this verse actually say he is satisfied by his blood? I mean, do you understand the ramifications of raising the question as to whether God is satisfied or not by the blood of his son? Heaven is not sitting there going, Jesus... Thank you for all you did. You got us just about the whole way there. That is so awesome. We are so close. We're so close, Jesus. And we have you to thank for that. Now, we got some work to do, but man, you got us so close. But, you know, if you could just improve the quality of your blood just a little bit, we could have gone the whole way. You think heaven sounds that way? This verse doesn't sound that way. 
And this grace is to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's all he did was have faith in Jesus. And he is justified. He is justified by the one who is just, perfectly, righteously just. And he's also the one who is the justifier. And that raises this question. Verse 27. Well then, what becomes of our boasting? Well, it's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Listen, the Bible is going to great ends to convince us that this, these components that are here in this passage, there's only two of them that are mentioned. There is the righteousness of Christ And there is faith that receives that righteousness. And there's nothing else here. Martin Luther, what else do you have to do? To stand with a sense of confidence. That you are right with God. But he could not. Romans 11 goes on and says, So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. These are severe verses. You must read them carefully. Because they install something that is a radical thought. You have this thing called grace right up until the time that you stick an ounce of human contribution in it. And then poof, it's no longer grace. And so if you believe in salvation by grace, then you need to do everything in your power to preserve this thing from being polluted by your own good contribution. Otherwise, according to scripture, it stops being this. And if salvation is by grace alone, well then where's the person who could ever stand and say, look at me, I'm saved. I did what? I did what? You know, probably my, my closest, I think this, I could say this is my closest brush with death. Although it probably wasn't much of a brush with death, but I was convinced it was. Some of you in here were on this trip. We did a trip to a Mexico missions trip into some rather remote areas. This is one of the trips where I, I think for the first time I encountered people who didn't even know who Jesus Christ was. And, and those trips in those days were to places where there was, there was open hostility against Christianity in some of these areas. And we ended up canceling uh, at least one trip, I remember, because the violence that had broken out in the town where we were going to be building a church had gotten bad enough where we couldn't go. So there was, there was danger here, and we were there sharing the gospel. And, and then we're flying back to New Orleans at the end of that trip, and we get on the plane. And it was the worst plane ride I've ever been on in my life. This thing was tossing and pitching and dropping hundreds of feet at a time. There was a, there was, the only drama that you could improve on here was by adding a girls volleyball team to that flight. 
and they were screaming. I mean, it was for high school volleyball, but they were screaming like a bunch of little girls. And it was scary. I mean, I really was thinking, this could be it. So I had this thought in my head, this, this could be it. I, I really could be standing before the Lord in a matter of moments. And in that moment, you know, your brain goes to work. It sucks in all kinds of stuff in that moment. It's like a vortex. So into my head pops this thought. Well, I guess if you're going to go, this is probably the best moment to go. You're just coming back from a missions trip, for goodness sake. <laughs> right? I mean, you just shared the gospel with people who've never even heard of Jesus Christ. You just led a team of people to go serve folks. This is probably as good as your resume is ever going to look, Keith. <laughs> you know, and as soon as that thought came in, what came in right after it that chased that thing into silence was this thought. And I remember having it on the airplane. If what Christ has done on my behalf is not sufficient for me in that day, I have no hope. And listen, I was on a hot streak at that moment, right? <laughs> so, I, you know, I don't, I don't know what you put in, in the basket there to sort of even the scales, make you feel like it's, a, it's an improved situation or not. But the Bible clearly points us to a confidence that what Christ accomplished, he fully accomplished. And it is by the grace that comes to us through him alone that we will ever stand before God with any sense of hope that he will be okay with us. Now, an interesting thing here, I thought, you know, do I need to get into this particular dimension? I think I do need to get into this, so... A couple of minutes on this and then I'm going to be done. Grace, that, well, you know, what exactly is grace? It's in the Bible and it can be understood from the Bible. But what exactly is it? And I've created two different labels and you're heading there. Is, is it like legal accounting grace or is it more like medical grace? And theologically, if you read back, you're going to find these two terms and they're a little confusing. But one is, is grace imputed to us or is grace imparted to us? And there's a difference. And this is very significant in terms of how you understand salvation. Let me get some help here from R.C. Sproul in this quote. He says, the early Latin fathers who studied the scriptures by means of the Vulgate, that was the, the fourth century Latin translation of the Bible by Jerome, Rather than the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament and the Greek New Testament, in time, right, let me just, right, do you get this? Right, so there is a body of the Bible that you're going to work from. Jerome creates the Latin Bible, the Latin Vulgate, which became what the church worked from. So it drew its ideas that the Bible was saying this from a Latin version of the scriptures. Later on in history, uh, there was going to be an antiquities study, a, a group and a time frame that got very interested in going back to the original sources. So they, they leap over the Latin Vulgate and start looking at the original sources of Scripture. And that's what he's going to describe here. He says, in time, the doctrine of justification came to address the question of how an unrighteous person, a fallen sinner, can be made righteous. In the development of the doctrine of justification in Rome, the idea emerged that justification occurs after sanctification. Right? So in the order of things, there is your come to God, 
run this race of sanctification and at some point reach justification, right? So it's a later development. That is, in order to be declared just, we first must be sanctified to the point that we exhibit a righteousness that is acceptable to God. And do you understand, just in that thought, there is a righteousness. You're going to stand before God one day and you're going to present a righteousness to him. How much of that righteousness is going to be your righteousness that you perform, that you're going to present on that day, that you hope will be acceptable to God? And this is where the, the Reformation finds its traction and says, wait, that, that cannot be. The Protestant Reformation, which followed the revival of the study of antiquities, focused attention on the Greek meaning of the concept of justification, which was the word dikaio. Am I saying that right? Dikaio. Thank you. Which means, listen, to declare righteous rather than to make righteous. So in Protestantism, justification was understood to come before the process of sanctification. Therefore, very early on, there was a complete difference of understanding regarding the order of salvation between these two communions. When does a person become justified before God? When are they in right standing with God? Is it after you've lived your life and you've done enough things? Then you're hopefully justified. Do you understand hopefully? Because you never really can know, can you? How sure can fallen, limited, wayward human beings ever be that they have met the requirement of a righteous, holy, perfect God? But according to the scriptures, justification is a declaration of our rightness with God. It is a moment in which God takes the righteousness of his son, puts it into our account, and looks at us now as righteous, right with God. Now that doesn't mean we're not going to continue to change or grow or come into more full imaging of God as our life moves along. But at any moment... Justification proclaims and declares based on the righteousness of Christ. You who have received that by faith are right with God and you're as right with God as you're ever going to be. That's what scripture says. That's more like an accounting word. A legal declaration word. Not like a medical word. See, the medical word was the idea that the human soul had become corrupted, diseased by sin. And grace was like something that could be given to that soul. That if it began to make use of that grace, it could heal and become something else. And so in that sense, grace is is more like a medicine that gets injected into you than it is grace in the heart of God who makes us righteous By declaring us to be so. That's a gracious act of God on our behalf. But this other grace, this medical grace, it's going to be injected into you. And now let's see what you do. 
And that's why you will hear this phrase. Saved by grace after all you can do. Because we need to see. And you know, this illustration kind of reminds me of, you know, if you, if you walked into a hospital and there was somebody, you know, a ward of people who were all affected by some bacterial outbreak. And there was this medicine that was found that was having a great impact on healing folks. You walk over, you take that medicine, you inject it into the first person. You take that medicine again, you inject it into the second person and the third person. Same medicine goes into every one of these people. This one dies. That one recovers. What, what made the difference? The person did. Their immune system is what made the difference. One person's immune system was too weak, even when helped by the medicine of grace, while the other person's immune system took the medicine of grace and ran with it, and now they are well. And that's a fact. That's the story of who is healed and who is not. Is that the story of who is in heaven and who is not? Is that the story of how one gets right with God? If grace is something that gets injected into you, and now let's see what you do with it. Well, when you get to the finish line and that other dude pooped out and didn't make it, do you have grounds for boasting? (laughs) Yes, you do. You don't sound like the New Testament anymore. You sound like you achieved righteousness by what you contributed. And here's the sad thing. Oh, and this is not to downplay all that Jesus did. Jesus did something incredible. I mean, if our, if our fall from God's righteousness is a million-mile journey, and you can start early in life, but you'd never make up that million miles. You'd never close the gap. But there's this grace that comes through us through Jesus. And Jesus comes, dies on the cross, sheds his blood for us. Boy, does he give us an incredible chance. He takes us 999,999 miles, 5,180 feet. Right now, y'all are trying to remember, what's that mean? Just 100 feet short of a million-mile journey. Just 100 feet. That's all. Just 100 feet. He's accomplished all this. So, yeah, you, you believe in grace. Yeah, I do. Can you see righteousness from where you are? Yeah, it's, it's 100 feet from here. But Jesus is done. What are you going to do now? You're going to have to do something to cover that 100 feet. You're, you're going to have to confess every sin and be truly sorry for them and take on acts of penitence. This is what you're going to have to do to cover that other 100 feet. What if, I, what if I forget one? Well, if we really believe that confession means anything, don't forget one. But what if I do? I mean, I'm only human. Well, why don't, why don't we create the safety net underneath this 100 feet? So when you go to, you know, you get this Jesus running start here and you run as hard as you can and you leap this last 100 feet If you miss it by a few feet, we'll just install this safety net thing called purgatory. So in purgatory, this purging takes place. And so whatever you didn't quite cover, 
There's a purging that can take place that can cleanse you from that unrighteousness and prepare you for God. And this is very significant. This teaching is very significant because there's a reason why on October 31st, Martin Luther walks over to the door and tacks this up on the wall. And the reason would be not because it was Halloween or anything. The reason is the next day is All Saints Day, November the 1st. And on All Saints Day, individuals would pilgrimage to various holy sites and locations. Well, one of the top places to go was Wittenberg, Germany. Because Prince Frederick had one of the most renowned collection of relics and holy things that you could ever come and visit. And adoration and drawing near to these relics carried with them indulgences that allowed you to reduce the amount of time you would spend in purgatory. He had so many relics that were given levels of importance that if you visited all of them, you could reduce your time in purgatory by 1,902,000 years. And right now you're wondering, where's the Bible verse that explains that? <laughs> right, remember, now I just, I just threw something out at you that maybe that's, well, I've, I've just kind of always believed that. Remember, there was an apostle who stood in the first century and said, listen, if anybody comes along to you and he preaches to you anything different than what we're telling you right now, let him be accursed. That's not my words. That's Paul's words. And here we have all this system put in place to get you this last hundred feet but what if what if God is completely satisfied by what Christ did what if there isn't a hundred feet left when Jesus accomplishes his mission and that would have been the last thing that he's going to get picked up here when you read Hebrews right last passage Hebrews chapter 10 the apostle, or Luther is going to encounter this sense of satisfaction. What is it that satisfies God? Hebrews 10 verse 11 says this. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. So there is human activity... That's done on a daily basis that the jury here in Hebrews says, no matter how often you do that, and no matter who it is that's doing that, that can never take away sins. At the end of you doing that, you're still going to have a sin issue. If you do it every day, you're still going to have a sin issue. And so here's the contrast. But, I pick up all the contrast here. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. All right, so did you just notice where Hebrews installed justification and sanctification? This was not start down the pathway of sanctification and hope that you run the race well enough to finally one day be justified. No, according to this, Christ did something that put justification at the beginning of the race. 
So you're fully justified from the moment because of what Christ did, even though you are still being perfected as that's being worked out in your life. But where does rightness with God come from, right? That's the question of the hour. How does one get righteous? By what Christ did on our behalf. Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. No more. No sins that need to be purged. No more. Now think with me in this passage for a moment. What is it that causes God to stop remembering our sins? And that word remember means to remember in order to exact payment. That's what that word actually means. What is it in this passage or in all of scripture that causes God to stop remembering, to stop Looking at our account and saying, well, there's still something here that's, that's 2,000 years for you and 8 million years for you. I mean, what is it that causes God not to do that? It's what Christ has done, which is contrasted here with what men do to try and take away their sins. But they're told they can never take away their sins. In verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these There is no longer any offering for sin. Any offering. There is not anything you and I can do to improve our acceptance before God. Not anything that can be done by us. And this is where Luther found himself. Having studied through Galatians and Romans and Hebrews. And so when a massive amount of people are about to flood into Wittenberg the next day, he walks over and says, we need to talk about this. I don't see this in scripture. And that launched what we know as the Protestant Reformation. But, but please notice, I mean, we've taken some time to go through a few passages today. Eric, you can come back up. What's the origin for the idea of sola gratia? Grace alone. It's not the 16th century. It's Genesis. It's the moment God began to interact with man. All of man's hope has never been tied to what man would do for himself. Whether he'd ever know what to do for himself whether he'd ever agree with God about doing it, whether he'd be willing to make the sacrifices to do it, whether if he offered something to God, it wouldn't already be stained and polluted in such a way that it was no longer righteous and acceptable to God. I said, this is the entire Bible is about this. That one is going to have to come and he is going to have to be perfect and he's going to have to live a perfect life and, and be accepted by a perfect God. And he's going to yield his life On behalf of those who are guilty. And if you will receive what he has done. Not add to it. Just receive what he has done. 
you will be made righteous with God. This is not just a 16th century message, is it? This is still true today. This is still an issue for us today. The the sobering reality, you could be sitting here today. The most sobering thing I can possibly say is to have read to you Galatians chapter 5. That if you are here today and you have an idea that Jesus, you appreciate all that he did. And you think he accomplished much on your behalf. But there's still something you've got to do. I don't know how you feel about that idea, but Galatians speaks to that idea in a, in a difficult way. It says you have fallen from grace and what Christ did is no longer of any advantage to you because you have leapt out of grace into human performance and now it's all based on what you do. Not the hundred feet. You've got to go the whole million miles now in your ability That sounds pretty hard, right? Well, that goes back to our original thought. The problem wasn't that Luther thought the church was too hard. He thought the church wasn't hard enough. Because if you think you can contribute and you can close the gap, your God is too small. He's not as holy as you think you say he is. He's not as righteous as you proclaim that he is because you can reach him. Even standing on the footstool of Jesus, you can still reach him. You know, if you're here today and that's kind of something that that you have in your own heart as a belief, at some point, Luther came to a place of understanding this and he saw totally different what the scriptures said. His rightness with God would be based on the grace of God alone. And and I hope you can hear that today. I hope what you hear in this good news is that I can today know I am right with God by receiving by faith what Christ did on my behalf, which was completely adequate to go the full distance and make me completely acceptable to God. And, and, And maybe you've not done that. Maybe you've believed in a Jesus plus all that you can do. I think that's not a good place to be. I think that's a place that's at odd with the scriptures. And so what I would encourage you to do this morning is pick up all your hope, all million miles of it, and transfer it to Jesus and what he did on your behalf completely. And he will transfer to you his righteousness. And you will, in that moment, be as right with God as you will ever, ever be. That will revolutionize your relationship with God and change you forever. And if you want to do that, I'm going to pray for you. You can pray this prayer right now. You and God can have a conversation. And you can do that. And so if you'd like to do that, go ahead. Let's bow our hearts together. These are your words as you hear them. Make them your words. Speak them to God. Lord, I see that you are greater than I ever imagined. More righteous 
than I ever could imagine. And therefore, Lord, if my effort, my contribution provides any hope for me to reach you, then I have no hope. But today I see you weren't asking me to put hope in me. You sent your son to meet every righteous demand. You sent your son to be fully satisfied by what he did and and now what he has done has forgiven completely all who will call upon him. So, Lord, this morning, I put my whole life and hope in you, Jesus. What you did on my behalf, your blood being shed, your life, death, burial and resurrection brought me all the way. And I just received that today by faith. It's mine for I believe it. And I trust, Lord, that you will now impart to me righteousness, right standing with God. I I, I get to be right with you. I get to know I'm right with you. And I get to live a life now that gets transformed by that power and that knowledge. So God, I thank you for salvation by grace alone. And I present to you my life to be lived. Not to get me there, but because I am there. For your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand up together.